So just as kind of a little bit of context for what we're doing this morning, we're in the midst of an 11-ish week series on the five markers of a new reformation. And the five markers of a new reformation came out of a theology circle that was formed within the Jesus Collective, which is a network that our community is in the midst of joining and becoming a part of. And this network is, I think, a couple of dozen churches across North America right now and growing um, quite regularly and and kind of quickly too, which is kind of exciting. And really, at the end of the day, the Jesus Collective is all about Jesus and putting Jesus at the center, making Jesus sort of the lens that we see everything through. We interpret our understanding of God the Father, our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of how we are to live, what what our purpose is, all of the things of our lives as followers of Jesus expressed and and understood through the very person of Jesus. And uh, that's kind of broken down into these five markers of a new reformation. A few weeks ago, I kind of presented an overview of that, so I'm not going to do that again this morning. But the idea is that as a community, we'll spend one week um, having one of the community members share on one of those markers. So basically explaining what those markers are, what that particular marker is, And then the week following will be a brief sort of summary of that marker. And then we're going to break into discussions and have uh, brief conversations, which I get can be uncomfortable. And I, you know, um, it's not super easy for any of us to, to do that sometimes. But I'm confident that we as a community can and, and will learn more through those, those conversations, pointing our chairs toward one another than just at the front. Um, so... This morning will be about 15 or 20 minutes or so, and then it'll probably be a little bit shorter kind of discussion than what we might have um, every other week, uh, but we'll, you know, we'll ease into this. And then next week, our, our favorite worship pastor, Matt Dennis, worship leader, what did he, whatever, our favorite worship music person, um, next to my wife, is is going to be sharing on the second marker. So these are not in order, by the way. <laughs> and I think he'll be sharing on the second marker, which is understanding God the Father and Scripture through the lens of Jesus. And I don't exactly know how it's stated, but it, that's the gist of it. So Matt's coming next week to share on that. I'm really excited. And that's a, I mean, all of these, you could say, are just super, super important in terms of how we understand us, our, our theology as a church, and our identity. Um, but... I would like to say that one's super important, <laughs> more important than even this one. But even this one, I think, is super important too. I don't know. They're all really important. So come back next week and, uh, and learn from Matt. And also, just on this note, there are accompanying resources that we're sharing on our Facebook group, which, by the way, if you're not following us on our Facebook group, you should do that. Uh, but we'll share it in our newsletter and on our Facebook group uh, podcasts and, and links to resources that kind of speak to these markers as well. And so we really encourage our community to kind of dive into this stuff. If you've got questions, send me, a message, send me an email. Last week, somebody sent me an email, and we had a great correspondence, and it was really helpful uh, for them and for me to kind of understand where folks are coming from. Uh, and that's what this is all about, learning and becoming more... Um, more in step with the person and way of Jesus in this world. So um, this morning, I do have a handout with questions for discussion that I will kind of disseminate later. Um, I don't actually have notes this morning, which is the first time I've ever done this. So it might just be a complete 
gong show. Um, I hope you'll bear with me. But I, last, yesterday I was like, okay, we're just doing a summary, so this will be really quick. And then as I was going through this, I was like, oh my word, this is heavy. This is complex. This is, there's a lot of stuff here. And it ended up being far more than just like two or three slides. Um, but here's the problem with this world, this situation that, are, that this marker, overcoming um, evil through the power of suffering love, comes out of. And essentially, we are at odds with one another. There is this inability to dialogue. You can say thanks to uh, technology that has caused these things in our modern day, and we've all been placed into these echo chambers, and nobody knows how to communicate well or, or in a healthy manner with one another without villainizing and demonizing the other. Um, and that's especially true in the United States. We see that all the time. Uh, you know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats are so far, but it's definitely increasingly more so in Canada as well. Um, there is this sort of de facto way in which we live and we make our decisions through fear, right? Through this uh, greed and jealousy. We call these things sin. Um, so sin is a very real, pronounced reality in our life, and that leads to evilness in our society. And that, that evil is, you know, Scott Baker last week shared about evil on sort of a systemic level, talking about uh, how evil has been projected onto um, marginalized groups within Canada, and we think of our First Nations friends, um, and, and sort of the... The, the fallout of that over the many years of just sort of subjecting them um, to, to kind of be under the thumb of um, greater powers. And so there is this challenge, this problem with one another as humans that we kind of suck at relating well to each other. But then there's also this uh, odds that we are at with animals and with creation and the world around us. Uh, we exploit and we violate according to our wants, our needs, our conveniences. Um, think about factory farming, which is like the grossest thing, but many of us are just kind of willfully ignorant to that uh, or turn a blind eye to that. Um, how we reap the land, we, we just don't take care of the earth. None of this is new. Um, and then we are at odds with ourselves and our own inability to find peace with the ways that the world teaches us how to reconcile. Because the ways that the world teaches us how to reconcile, um, as we're going to find out, just historically have not been very effective. And so this is sort of the problem. None of this is new, unless you've been living under a rock your whole life. But this is the reality we as humans find ourselves in. In other words, there's a lot of evil in the world and it is manifested in all sorts of different ways. But one way of framing it all is understanding is violence toward others. Violence is essentially anything that violates the intrinsic worth of something, whether it's a fellow human, whether it's animals, whether it's creation, whatever it is, it's when we violate something other, we are uh, basically produce or we are um, imposing violence upon them. And there's a lot of violence in this world, and you're prob probably familiar with it even in yourself. I also am very appreciative that this is working today. Praise the Lord. Um, so there is this sermon that uh, accompanies each of these um, uh, five markers, 
and this, that, that we can use at will as we'd like to and adapt or however we'd like to use. And so I was actually going through this last night and I was like, man, this is so good. And so I'm, I'm pulling a bunch of quotes out of it because I think it's, it speaks to this marker especially, but I think it's worth sharing for us as a community as well. So this is Greg Boyd, who's a pastor down in Minneapolis, part of the Jesus Collective. And he says this, at the root of all this chaos, this violence, is the lust for power, the coercive power to protect oneself, to advance one's self-interest, to defeat one's enemies, impose one's will on others, and of course, the power to manipulate nature to one's own advantage. This lust is found in individuals, social groups, institutions, corporations, and nations. And most violence toward humans as well as the earth and animal kingdom is the direct result of the longing for this kind of power. Right? So it's this kind of power that we're all very familiar with because we ourselves practice it, but we see it in the society and the world around us as well. Right, this sort of like power to control others, to exert ourselves over others. And the world frames this kind of power. Like this is how they're like, okay, yeah, there's this problem the world says. Go out there in the world. They're always trying to address this reality of evil. And they say, you know, like, if you look at this, history is a highly polarized power competition where everyone tries to seize control at the highest levels and impose their will on others. In other words, the world solves this by saying, if I can just get in power, we'll stop this evil, we'll fix this, right? If I can just get on top, we'll finally figure out how to do this right. Think of politicians and their sort of noble pursuits to be in power and then change the system entirely. Um, the end justifies the means is sort of the philosophy that governs this way of thinking. Like, it doesn't really matter how we get there. At the end of the day, as long as everyone's happy, we're fine. And so there is, you know, whether it's war or whether it's subjecting ourselves over others or if it's oppressing others, it kind of doesn't matter because at the end of the day, if we arrive there, that's okay, right? That, this is sort of the mindset. Or the only sort of power that exists is power over others. It's a very sort of limited, reductionist way of understanding, of thinking that power only means when we can put ourselves over others. This is how the world frames their solution to the problem of evil. And then... Historically, the church, not always, but this is how the church has also solved this. And uh, perhaps you've heard this term Christendom, which is this idea that as a Christian state, as long as we can get everyone in the society to get in line with our Christian values, all the things will be solved, right? All the problems will be solved. We just, and it doesn't matter how we get there. And we're seeing this unravel in the States right now, this, this pursuit of Christian nationalism, it doesn't really matter how we get there. We can oppress and you can do all sorts of terrible, evil things to each other. And as long as we are pushing that final goal of, Christian, or of, of everyone in, in uh, practicing these Christian values together, um, then we'll be okay. Then all of this problems, all this evil will go away. It's a very, again, sort of one-dimensional understanding of how to address evil. And uh, again, we build God's kingdom when we exercise our power over others to bend them to our perception of God's desires. So some of these ideas are a little bit 
kind of esoteric and um, it's not super duper important that you're following. I think the gist here is that we understand that evil is reality and that the world and the church have historically come at addressing these evils through conventional understanding of power, right? And to say evil is power through the, evil is overcome through the power of suffering love is to suggest a new relationship with power is necessary. And that's what this marker is really all about. And so the third way that, G, that Christ followers, the Jesus-centered people, um, are to address evil is exemplified in the cross. And again, this is a quote from that sermon. Uh, Greg says, By contrast, the Apostle Paul instructs us that while the cross looks foolish and weak to the world, those of us who have faith are to know that the cross is both the wisdom and the power of God. When God displays God's omnipotence, when God shows that he is God, that he is all-knowing and all-powerful, when he is all-powerful, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus dying a torturous death on a cross, which throws our entire understanding of power on its head, doesn't it? Everything we understand about power that we just looked at, about how the world looks at it, how, how the church has always looked at it, doesn't make sense in light of the church, which is why it looks super stupid and foolish to everyone. And it does. God power, in other words, is the transforming power of his cruciform love. Cruciform is cross-centered love. This is why Paul says that it is by means of the cross that God is reconciling everything to God and to know and to one another, thereby bringing peace. That peace is actually attained through the cross, through submitting to these evil powers. The natural mind can't see the power of the cross, which is the power. Again, this is the central component of the cross is this self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love. But we who follow Jesus are called to trust that this kind of power is the strongest force in the universe. And friends, that is a step of faith. This cross-centric love, this self-sacrificing, su- self, um, suffering love, we are to believe as followers of Jesus is the most powerful force in the universe. Far more powerful than exploiting others, than climbing to the top so that we can control. Far more, power than, far more str- stronger than any of those forces of power. Those, those ways that the world understands power. This submission, this self-sacrificial love. The question we then ask is, in a social context, when everyone clamors for the power to get their way at the expense of others and or the earth and our animal kingdom, what would it look like for the church, for grassroots church, to model a radically different and altogether beautiful kind of power in the process of pointing people to a radically different and altogether beautiful God? How do we make this God that we confess, this system of belief that points to Jesus and to this beautiful, big, giant idea of God, how do we make that compelling to the world? And historically, we haven't done an amazing job. We haven't done an amazing job. So what does it look like in 2023 for Christians to submit to this way of power, this self-sacrificial suffering love?
Um, uh-oh, don't fail me now. Can you advance to the next slide, John? And you would be hard-pressed to find an argument that counters this perspective in Scripture, particularly the New Testament. Um, the Scriptures are filled with passages that speak to this approach to how we are to deal with evil in the world. This passage in Romans, I think, really kind of captures it well. Romans 12, uh, 12, verse 14, and then skipping a few to 17. says, this is Paul speaking. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So first of all, when you are oppressed, instead of returning that um, oppression with revenge or with sort of like, I got to get even or quid pro quo, uh, you know, this whole mentality, instead of doing that, Paul is saying, I want you to actually bless them which is counterintuitive. I get that. Then he says, do not repay, in case you didn't follow this, he said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. So how do we overcome evil? Not by retribution, not through evil. We don't inflict evil back on them. That's how you've learned. That's how the world teaches. That's everything that you think you know. That's what seems to be the way to do it. And Paul's saying, actually, in the way of Jesus, it's the opposite of that. The opposite of that. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. Don't even worry about that. God's got that covered. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, this is your enemy, the person you don't like, the person who has done you wrong. If he is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give something to drink. In doing this, you will, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I've always read that passage, heap burning coals on his head. It's like, well, aren't we in the end still doing something bad to him? But actually, in fact, I did my undergrad thesis on this, this passage and focused on that. And I, I think I totally misunderstood it looking back. Now, that was 20 years ago. That was okay. Um, but here's what it actually means. It, mean, it was a saying. It was an idiom. And it actually means they will come under conviction. They will be like, what? I did not expect this. And they will be led to, to repentance through your generosity, your kindness, your love toward them in spite of their evilness toward you. That's what that means. Now, um, I think I'm moving along pretty quick here. But John, okay. So to sum up, do not overcome uh, evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's really the essence of what this marker, this, this marker is all about. Suffering love looks like facing evil that we are confronted with in our individual lives at a systemic level, not through retribution, not through overpowering them, not through clamoring for power and control, but through suffering love. And what is suffering love? What does that look like? Is, room for, is where we will have discussion this morning. And um, there's lots of room to grow in that. And trust me, um, I, I will say this here. I, I included a quote in this handout. And the reason I did it is because without this, this looks just like getting slapped and walked on all over the place. And that's not what we're saying here. But um, N.T. Wright and I don't have this, so I'm going to read this here. N.T. Wright mentions the resurrection as sort of the culmination and, and the way that we can hold this 
um, perspective of love or of, of dealing with evil. He says the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus proclaims and installs him as the world's true Lord and Savior, the future resurrection and glorification of Jesus' followers will vindicate them as the true people of the one true God, despite their present suffering and humiliation. So despite our suffering, despite the humiliation, despite the almost inevitable sense of failure in this, there is a resurrection of all believers that we can look forward to. And that is our hope, that the humiliation, the suffering, the death even, is not the end of the story, right? That's what our faith is based on. That's why the resurrection is so pivotal to our faith, friends. Um, and so we have to cling to that and we have to use that as sort of like the power that moves us forward. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not over. There is hope here, right? All this suffering is not for, is not the end of the story. And so we cling to that. Um, and so what does that look like? And, I, and we're gonna break out in like two minutes here, but does anyone, can I skip a slide? There you go. Um, anyone who doesn't follow Scott Baker on Facebook know what this is about? Can anyone tell me? And if you're Mennonite, you probably have a good idea. Who is this statue representative of? Anyone. Anyone know their Mennonite history? Marsha does. It's not Menno Simons. Go ahead, Marsha. Just say it. Just, oh, there it is. Dirk Willems. Yes. <laughs> Dirk Willems. This is one example of what this looks like. And this, I'm sharing this as a way to prove that this way, this approach could end up costing you your life, for one. I'm not saying that let's go out and do that, but um, I'm also showing that this way often doesn't look like it's the right way. That it's like, well, you still die in the end. So Dirk Willems was an early Anabaptist in the Netherlands. He's seen here rescuing his pursuer from icy water. This is a very famous story in Mennonite um, uh, history. And uh, Scott Baker and Amy were driving west. They're actually driving west, or they were, and they stopped in Winnipeg at this Mennonite um, historical museum thingy, which is where this is. And so Dirk was in prison for his beliefs, which were at odds with practices of the state church in the 1500s. He managed to escape, fleeing over thin ice of the moat surrounding his prison. Giving chase, the jailer, the one pursuing him, fell through the ice and cried for help. Willems turned back, saved the jailer's life. He did not pay evil with evil. He went back and paid it with love. He was immediately recaptured and later burned at the stake. For Mennonites, Dirk Willems represented what it means to follow Jesus' way of peace. This is the way of peace. This is a new kind of power that we are asked to follow as followers of Jesus Christ. And he, of course, gave us the perfect example by going to the cross, not oppressing his enemies, not fighting against his enemies, despite all the reason to. He chose not to. He submitted himself to the cross and he asked us to do the same.